are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. You will probably, the, probably maybe the best thing you could do is, and I can, I can email this out, I can email the, the texts out, but you might just want to have a pen and uh, paper ready. Again, I will have plenty of uh, passages up here on the screen, but it may be worth it to you to just jot down the references and maybe the subject that I am referring to. That way you can kind of connect the dots. And again, I, if it's really helpful, I, can, I have a whole document of, of verses on baptism that I actually think is very helpful for you to just read through. Um, but I will have them there and we will walk through a little discussion tonight. Find my clicker here. So we're going through a two-part series here on on baptism. The first uh, sermon tonight will be covering what is baptism. We will look at the nature and the work of baptism. And then next week, we'll look at a little bit more of some of the ins and outs. We will look at who receives baptism, uh, who gives baptism, and how is it administered. So we'll look at a little bit more of the, if you know one of my favorite movies of all time, the nitty-gritty of baptism. We will look at that next week. Uh, That's probably where some of your questions lie. But tonight, I may want to raise a couple questions here for you tonight. I don't pretend that my particular view, or maybe even our particular view of baptism, is the only orthodox position. I think it is a orthodox position. Uh, It is how I view it through scripture. I hope in many ways you share that alongside me. Uh, In many ways, for for those of you who are members, uh, you have at least signed a very broad, concentric circle of agreement to things that are presented here tonight. Um, There might be particulars that you might not agree with, and that's okay. You can also hold two things loosely within our body and allow other people to hold things a little tighter, and that's okay. Uh, Baptism is one of those primary issues that has actually sparked so many denominational splits and grouping splits. So just know, uh, baptism is uh, is one of those major things that, that form the practice and the life of the church. Um, but most of it, I hope, from a doctrinal perspective, from a big picture perspective, uh, we, can, we can agree on. Or as Paul in Ephesians says, there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And I hope that you are at least able to recognize and agree to that reality as well, that those who are in Christ have been baptized into one giant baptism into him, and we share in him if we are in faith. So the question becomes, what is baptism for us tonight? When, especially in uh, earlier history, much earlier history, when nations were dominating other nations, although you're like, wait, that actually happened this year. That's still going on for sure. But certainly as seen uh, early on in history, when other nations would capture other lands and nations and people groups, one of the main reasons why they would enslave and, uh, and work and capture uh, other nations, they were actually trying to strip the culture, the language, and the practices away from these other nations. So in captivity, they would have to be, uh, uh, um, they'd have to be engaged in other cultural practices not their own, or they'd have to speak other languages not their own or be involved in other nations' practices as a way of unhinging their own minds from their normal practice. I wonder if in today's society, there has been, at least in church society, there has been a kind of capturing of our hearts and our minds here and related to the church's culture, language, and practice. 
Are there other things at war in the life of the church that have actually caused us to shift away from a biblical stance on the way the church should function, or maybe even a biblical way that the church uses its language or has formed its practice? And I think certainly if you understand the nature of sin within the life of the church, of which there is much, you could certainly understand the natural propensities for any church to be moored off of a proper or a biblical culture or practice or language. It's happened throughout all history, and there's a real sense to which we can say even our expression, as it is here as Good Shepherd Bible Church, I would not be so easily convinced that we had the most accurate biblical or Christian culture, language, or practice. I hope, I think, that's what we're shooting for. But gun to my head, I couldn't guarantee that that's the way it is. But certainly in the West, in our day and age, in our nation, where our own nation has been infused with some aspect of Christianity or the Bible and just the way that our nature, uh, our, our nation has been culturalized and uh, in, embedded with particular languages and practices that look a lot like the Bible, we should, with uh, natural reason, just deduce that even our churches, our churches need to continue to go back to the realities of the Bible to find its culture, language, and practice. I could point to things like revivalism or pietism as things that have shaped our own church culture. Even here in our little context, we can see the inner workings of revivalism culture where uh, many of our parents and grandparents walked sawdust trails and responded in some sort of act of choice uh, that came and prayed and uh, observed altar calls and made choices for the Lord. And certainly there's a lot of value to those things, but that's a language and a culture that you don't often find in the pages of Scripture, those kind of lingos and those kind of practices. You don't, you don't hear too much about them as much as we value them and say that they're real and spirit-filled and worthy, uh, worthy to be commended for sure. But also we look at ideas like consumerism and easy believism in our society here, where in one sense, everybody loves Jesus. I mean, this is America after all. We know Jesus, especially in the South, where I spent most of my time growing up, how church was so easily formed around people. Consumerism and easy believism can creep into the church and it becomes a way of practice. But even health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, which is a a major contributor to church life here in the American West. All of these flow from different trails and different paths in history. And the question we could, we could naturally raise in these circumstances, and again, even here and now, is, is our language, culture, and practice lined up with the language, culture, and practice of Scripture? And I point to things like revivalism, pietism, consumerism, easy believism, all the isms, right, that flood our nation. And I have to make a general um, statement relative to at least one thing that I feel is underappreciated in the life of the church from a culture, language, and practice point of view. And that is the view of the sacraments. What you miss in a lot of American evangelical West churches is a bloodied church, is a church with bread and wine at its forefront. You often see a dry church, and I don't mean alcohol, a church that doesn't often talk about the nature and the reality of things like baptism. It's not part of our language. It's not part of our culture. If it is, it's a flash in the pan, something to get excited about, but it's not pervasive. And I, I do have a concern that within our, our churches, the, the proper weight and priority that the scriptures have, have given to us, especially in relation to the gospel and the sacraments, don't often show up. You can listen to many, many sermons or sermon series and not even hear about the idea of union with Christ or gospel or regeneration or baptism, what, what these ideas truly mean. And when I read the pages of scripture, I see a very wet theology. 
I see a very drenched theology where there are many passages in Scripture that if you're reading carefully and you're reading the text with concern and with maybe even a healthy dose of criticism, you're wondering, is that talking about the realities of Christ in baptism? And we often just don't treat it as such. Tonight, I just want to encourage all of us, wherever you come from, wherever you're headed, even us in a non-denominational setting where it's easy to kind of do a catch-all category of the best kinds of all the theologies, I want us to pay very careful attention to the text of Scripture. I want us to pay very careful attention not to our practice and our culture and the way that we express things, but I want you to hear the voice of Scripture. And so I have plenty of Scriptures. And to be honest, I'm, I'm going to present them without much context just because of the nature of how much time we have, essentially. But just know, I, I want you to study these. I want you to read these. I want you to ask questions about the text. I want you, as you hear something, say, is that what that means? Could it be? And in either direction, does it mean more than it says plainly? Or if it says something really plainly, is that to be all that I discern from the text? You need to think critically about the text, but we also need to bend in with a listening ear, not to say what we want it to say, but to allow the text of Scripture to shape our culture, our language, and our practice. So for us, we do have um, certain points of theology that we subscribe to here as a church. We do have, in one sense, uh, creeds that we line up with very generally. And in one sense, everything that we write down theologically has become a creed, right? There's something we believe in. There's something that we've formulated about baptism that is helpful. And this is how it comes up in uh, M.P. Johnson. I'm going to show you a a giant definition of baptism, and then I'm going to condense it, and you'll find that our condensed view is actually our stated view in our articles of faith, all right? So I'm telling you where we drew our theology from, from this guy. M.P. Johnson says this, Baptism is God's pledge to us of our union with Christ. In the waters of baptism, God impresses upon our bodies the truth and reality of our incorporation into the death, burial, and resurrection of the living Christ. Baptism, in other words, is a visible and tangible experience of the exceedingly good news that we have been crucified in Christ's death and raised to new life in Christ's resurrection. Baptism is the sacrament of our new and crucified, uh, our, our new crucified and resurrected identity in Christ Jesus. Baptism is the gospel in water, allowing us to experience in our bodies the truth that we are immersed forever into Jesus Christ. This comes from a book called Union with Christ by M.P. Johnson, which I highly recommend to you. Uh, It's a book that all it does is it looks at salvation through the lens of union with Christ. Uh, It's beautiful. And again, in terms of language and understanding, and especially in Paul's theology, uh, it's highly understated how important union with Christ truly is. We've drawn some things from this uh, definition, but our statement of faith simply says this. Baptism is God's pledge to us through water and the word, of our union with Christ. It is a sign and seal of our participation in his death and resurrection, of our sins being washed away, and of our incorporation into his body, the church, and our being filled with the Holy Spirit. There's many things I want to point out about this definition that I think are really important. The first thing you'll see is this helpful distinction. Baptism is God's pledge to us. And in discussing this little reality, and in other words, let me let me kind of clarify what it's not saying. It's, it's saying in particular that baptism is not first and foremost your pledge to God. You hear that? It's saying first and foremost there's a bigger operation going on. Now we'll get there when it talks about a sign and a seal. There is there is a point where it comes, it it, it is our pledge to God. It is a response to what God does, and it's a real response. It is an actual response that God places in our hearts to sign up with Jesus, or as we've heard it 
probably talked about in our churches, to go public for Jesus. It is that, but think root versus fruit. The fruit is, yes, we do sign up to go public for Jesus, but we're going to look tonight, we're going to see from Scripture that actually the root of it is God's first and foremost pledge to us. God is the primary actor. And this might even come to come uh, come out in even the way that we talk about it. Uh, for instance, you've probably heard me use this phrase or this word, sacrament, which for some of you has particular kinds of meaning and maybe even scary because you showed up at a Protestant church and they're using the same word that your Catholic church has used for so long. And you're starting to wonder and question, oh no, are they the same view? All right, hold on to that. To hold on to that. I'm also I'm happy to use this word, but we don't often use it around here. But you've heard it, and it's actually in our statement of faith, this idea of ordinance. Ordinance. Why one over the other? There's some history behind it that I think is helpful. Sacrament, uh, by the way, none of these are particular, the way that they're used in our churches, neither of them are particularly biblical words. You won't find them used for baptism in the Lord's Supper in relation to the words used, sacrament or ordinance. Um, but the idea of the sacrament comes from the Greek word mysterion, which is, covers the idea of mystery. Paul talks about a mystery um, a lot in his epistles. He talks about this mystery that's now revealed. In fact, I think we even read it in Ephesians, the text that we read. This idea of a mystery. Uh, he's not talking about a Scooby-Doo-themed uh, uh, Bible hunt. Uh, he's talking about something that what at one point was not clear, but now has been made clear. And Paul ends up giving us the, the who's who of his mystery. Well, it's Christ. Christ, the mystery of God, the thing hidden for all ages that's now revealed in Jesus. He makes sense of the entire Bible. He's the key that unlocks the entire plan of salvation. He is the fulfillment of all things. Christ himself is the mystery. So in one sense, the idea of the mystery, which eventually in Latin came out to sacrament, it's a little misguided. It's not the best word to be used, but historically it was used first to relate to the things of Christ or the things that Christ uses, the means that Christ is delivered through. So in that sense, we get this idea of sacrament. And through them, we get a particular view of God's gracious work. Now, we believe that Truly, there's a view of the sacraments that's taken too far, where there's this idea that if you just do the sacramental thing, if you just do the work, that work does the thing of saving. You do the work itself, there's grace in and of the act, right? So for instance, if the sacrament is baptism that they're referring to, you do the act of baptism, and without any other thing attached, anything else going on in the life of the heart or the, the mind, it doesn't matter. As long as you do the act, the grace is there. And certainly we would reject that, as we'll hear tonight. But still, I do think there's something significant to the reality that there is grace present somehow and in some way. Versus the idea of the Protestant Reformation brought in this term ordinance, really in contrast to the sacramental view of the Catholic Church that they were rejecting, rightfully so. They came up with this idea of ordinance, which simply presented the things that Jesus told us to be doing. The, 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 the way that Jesus told us to express language, practice, and culture within the life of the church. And throughout history, we've seen this idea of ordinance actually trace into a kind of memorialistic view of sacraments. To where it's really a flattened reality, and it's a flattened practice, almost in a weird way ritualistic. It only points back but nothing's actually happening in the moment. We're just carrying these things on because Jesus asked us to be doing them. And I have a couple things to pick on with that idea. I'm not sure Jesus ever gave us anything in particular just to be doing for the sake of doing. Okay? So it's not, I, don't, I really don't think Jesus just said, hey, just, I don't know why, but just keep doing this practice because I want you to keep doing it. I don't think that's ever in, uh, a proper theology of Jesus. But also, I do think there's something even more. Yes, we are to be doing these, these things. Yes, Jesus did hand them down, but it's for a particular reason. So I'm actually happy to use either sacrament or ordinance. You'll probably hear me express it as a sacrament just by way of emphasis to point out, I think it's important that we realize something's going on in the middle of these moments. That in other words, it's not just a flattened ritual. And I want us, especially in our context that have 
often assumed that these are just things we should be doing. Just, I don't know why, but just keep doing them. I try to highlight a little bit more of a, there's something going on in the moment that I think we need to think about, all right? So don't, no need to pick on those two words. They're not, neither of them are biblical. Neither of them are probably the best words to be used, but historically that's what we've got to deal with. So we have here this discussion of baptism. Baptism is a gift in a work of God whereby God acts and speaks on behalf of his people. And this is the first thing I want to say in relation to this question of what is baptism. I want to make it very clear to us, and scripture makes this very clear to us. Baptism is God's thing. From start to finish, in the middle, in and through all of it, it is God's thing holistically. Now, yes, there are a couple things that we can own, that we can wonderfully own, that we do get to own. But I never want us to lose sight of the reality that baptism is actually God at work in the midst of his people. See, the reality is God often uses, and I would say most often in scripture, he most often uses physical and human elements as a means of giving his grace to people. And this is no different in the reality of baptism. There are physical and human elements. There's water, simple, plain water. And there's also human agency. There's people like pastors and elders and deacons who carry out the act of baptism. They're no different. They're not high priestly special people that simply get to do it because God has blessed them. They're just ordinary people. And this is not just spiritual waters. Nothing's being infused to this water that's anything great. In fact, it can be the muddiest of waters and still accomplish what God intends. It's just simple, plain water. But no less, God is able to use it. Though God chooses to use the physical element of water and the workings of people in baptism, the sacrament should no less be seen as supremely God's work. This can be clearly seen by the fact that baptism is to be administered in his triune name, and that baptism is the promise and the command of God for his people. God works through his word in the waters of baptism, God gives the sacrament in this way so that, as one pastor said, no one may doubt that baptism is of divine origin, not something devised or invented by human beings, even though it is carried out through human agency. And again, as we see in our statement of faith, baptism is God's pledge to us. The first thing I want us to see from Scripture is that actually, as God's thing, it actually comes about in his name. God attaches his triune name to baptism. And this comes directly from Matthew 28, the great commission that God has given us. Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. How do we make disciples of all nations? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Baptism is God's own gift on account of the words of institution here, this name that we invoke in the middle of baptism. We baptize our own people here in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Some of you maybe even be triple-dipped. Any triple-dipped folks here? No, no, No shame? No. We don't practice that, but it's a tradition with, uh, within the Protestant church here in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a practice. I don't mind it from the sense of at least it's trying to highlight our triune God and his name evoked to this rite. It's important. Baptism is God's own gift in light of it. Baptism is done and received in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, baptism does not take place on the authority, the will, or the power of man alone. Rather, baptism originates and rests on the authority and the will of God, for God himself stakes his honor, his power, and his might on it, hence the name. Baptism is also, uh, it also finds its fulfillment in the triune Christ. This is from uh, a, a very old dead guy named John Calvin, who was part of the Protestant Reformation. Listen to him describe how the triune God fulfills baptism in a particular way, car- carries it out in himself. Christ dedicated and sanctified baptism in his own body, 
so that it might be the firm bond and fellowship and unity by which he desired to have with us. So we see that baptism is fulfilled in him, which is why we call him, Christ, the proper object and the goal to which baptism looks. No wonder then that the apostles baptize in his name. Nevertheless, it is impossible that the one who baptizes in Christ's name should not also invoke the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hence, the cause of both of our cleansing and regeneration must be seen to lie in God the Father, the cause. Its substance in the Son, that is the actual physical matter in his body, and its effective working through the Spirit, the proper effect. All of this is what Calvin says is meant by this triune name. The Father, the cause of our regeneration. The Son, the actual substance in his body to which we are being baptized into. And the Spirit working in our hearts to bring these realities about to us. It's in his name. Which means very importantly that you are not being baptized by any particular pastor, preacher, denomination, or church. Baptism into Christ is baptism into the triune God's name and his name only. Baptism is also God's command. It's God's command, certainly given from the same passage there in Matthew 28, 19. It's clear. All authority has been given to me. I am passing my authority down to you. A bold strategy, Cotton. Very bold strategy. Something no less to be thought of with great um, humility. That as the people of God, we carry out baptism in his name, but as his command, given his authority, we should handle it seriously. We should handle it weightily. But inasmuch as we should guard and protect it, we should, we should also seek to be as liberal as God would want us to administer it. We should come to the, baptiz- the, the waters in baptism very cautiously, knowing that it's his authority, his command given in his name. The command is not the invention or design of man, but of God. Yet God has clearly and authoritatively given the command to his people, whereby they are expected to obey it, exercising the authority that God has given. If you're questioning the reality of how could God give authority over to men on such amazing things, you can look at Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 and uh, discuss the reality of the keys, which I just normally would just say very, very generally and broadly here, would be the administering or the preaching of the gospel. God grants us the authority to proclaim the gospel in a way that delivers sinners. It's a powerful thing when we clearly think about what God is asking us to be doing and being about. It is to be concluded that man is not to question God's ordinance, whether or not God can do what he says, and through what means he is able or not able to do it, but rather to trust him, exercising faith, which certainly is what pleases God. It's his command. And finally, baptism is God's thing because it's also his promise. His promise. If I can say it this way, God's promise is attached to it. Baptism is not only God's command for his people, it is also his promise. As Jesus says in Mark 16, verse 15, a little glitchy, And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. This passage is slightly tricky. Again, I want you to don't be afraid to listen to the language. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to say, did my Bible just really say that? Let it challenge you. Many have poked at this particular passage because it says there very plainly in verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And just fold up shop and just, well, I'll be done with it, right? We're all, we're all in the clear. He throws on this little tagline, whoever does not believe will be condemned. And what you see there in verse 16 is you see two mentions of faith, right? Whoever believes and is baptized, but whoever does not believe is condemned see two mentions of faith and only one mention of baptism. And many have argued from that that what you're supposed to deduce from that is the reality that, well, faith is the most important part. So just lean on that. Just understand the reality of faith is the most important part. And he didn't really mean what he said there about 
salvation coming through baptism. It's, you have to understand, the faith is the priority. And though I would say 100% faith is the priority, I also don't think you can miss the connection between the realities of baptism, what is being signed in baptism, what is being displayed in baptism, and the faith that truly saves. In other words, I don't think Jesus is making a distinction here. And I think that that distinction should be held on to, which is why he very generally says, whoever is not believing, which would also assume no baptism, is not saved. There is a connection. Don't, don't miss the surprising connection that Jesus makes the link between the actual act of baptism and saving faith. Don't miss that connection. We'll continue talking about that, but let the language of Scripture hit you just a little bit there. Not only did Jesus preach a promise attached to baptism, but so did the apostles as well. This comes from Acts chapter 2. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. In verse 39, you have that very clear articulation for this promise is for you and for your children and anyone who would call on the name of the Lord, a very general and liberal category of people here. It basically includes a whole host of people. It says this promise is for you, anyone who would draw near to Christ. There's been a lot of debate as to what exactly that word in verse 39, for the promise who that is referring to or what specifically that is referring to. Is that referring to back there in in verse 38, the receiving of the Holy Spirit? Is that talking about the forgiveness of sins? Is that talking about the idea of repenting and be baptized? Just look at the text. I'm like, it looks like yes. It looks like yes. looks like he's not trying to parse words. He's not trying to He's not trying to narrow down a particular focus as to exactly what's what. He says there's repentance and faith. Or there's, there's repentance and baptism, which again, in my estimation, would, would be that same coin of repentance and faith being operated there. Again, there's a connection in Jesus' mind between faith and baptism. So we're okay there. Repent and be baptized. And through that faith-filled motion, there will be forgiveness of sins and the promise of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you. You see a very general statement about these realities being all tucked in together. Again, you see another linkage there between this idea of faith and the act of baptism. And now we see appropriated blessings based on promise. Verse 41, we see it in action. Those who received his word, a repentance and faith motion to receive the word, and they were baptized and there was added to the church there 3,000 souls. The promise given in baptism is seen in that in which it signifies. If you're wondering what exactly is the promise, don't forget that this is a true sign. It's signifying something. It's demonstrating something. It's signifying. It's communicating. It's speaking. It's doing something. And there are many passages in Scripture that give us a flavor of the host of things that baptism actually signifies. If I listed them out for you, you'd be here all night. But I will just give you a little bit, a, a little, uh, what is this, five, a little five-layer dip of what is included in the picture of baptism here. You have the forgiveness of sins. We'll walk through some of these passage, passages, but forgiveness of sins, union with Christ, regeneration, sanctification, salvation. And we're going to read these passages and you're, I'm going to, I'm going to put, some, put some things to them. And for, for instance, we're going to go to Acts 2. We already read that and talked about the forgiveness of sins. But you can see other things layered in there as well. And you're like, oh, it's also talking about regeneration or it's also talking about sanctification. You can see these things layered and you're like, well, what, why? How can we talk about baptism in so many ways? Because what's being pictured 
is so layered. For instance, we have baptism being called a bath, especially in the Old Testament. The Jews were so used to baths, bathing, baptisms. They did bath, baptisms all the time. They did it with their cups and their plates and they, with their hands. They were used to baptizing. The high priests were used to baptizing and washings and going into baths, signifying a cleansing. So you have that picture demonstrated. Of course, we pick up very clearly in our culture, mostly often, this idea of being pictured into a death. Like we're going and we're being buried in baptism, which is part of the language we even use in our baptism. Buried in the likeness of Christ resurrected into new life with him. We'll say those things in our, in our baptism. Again, hinting at some of the layers of the pictures that are being demonstrated there, right? We have a cleansing. We have a washing away of sin being pictured here. There's so many different layers to this idea of baptism. And you say, well, which one is it? Yes, it's all of them. And scripture is actually going to throw them out there in a variety of different ways. And that's okay. Don't, I, to me, I'm not afraid to use these different layers as a way of expressing the realities of baptism because Scripture uses them. We'll throw out a couple here. But I put them, I put them up there for you so you can, you can write them out. Again, if you want some of these verses, I, I have them listed out. You're welcome to, to ask me for them. I can just send them out to the whole church as well. Let's look at Acts 22, verse 16. This has this idea of the, the bath or the washing away of sin. This comes from Paul's conversion where he's told, why are you waiting? And by the way, he was already converted at this point. This is, he's, he's already come to faith. In one sense, he's already been regenerated. The Spirit of God has already met him, raised him to new life, caused him to have faith in Christ. Now the scales fall away from his eyes, and he is told, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And you say, well, well Why? Why did he have to be baptized if he was already regenerated? Why does he have to go and wash away his sins if he was already regenerated? That's a good question. Maybe it was this process of him coming to grips with the realities of salvation. He saw Jesus on the road, he had the Spirit, and he needed this profound awareness of he had sin that he needed to be cleansed from. So he's told, go baptize, get those sins washed away. And it was expected at that moment that even through faith that that was a reality that in his heart he would realize. Go wash your sins away. Can we say that his sins were already washed away? I don't know. Sounds like it. But it also sounds like there was much for Paul to realize here within the promises of God. There are a lot of things that Paul in his faith can go after and understand more about the gospel. You have Romans 6, 1 through 4. I keep putting these up here. Romans 6, 1 through 4. What are we to say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been, uh, do you not know that all of us who have been, what am I reading? Did I make a, make a typo here? Where we, verse three. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Sorry, I had a typo. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There are a lot of layers attached here. We have this idea of union with Christ, that we are united into his death. The question you could come up with that is like, so whose baptism is it? Is it mine or is it Jesus's? You're like, yeah, yeah, you're united to his. Your baptism is squarely united to his. So as much as Jesus died and Jesus was raised, you were there also. You say, well, how? Through your baptism. In your baptism. So, well, doesn't that happen spiritually? And I say, yeah, it does. You want to try to explain that? Were you being baptized when Jesus was being baptized? Were you being baptized when he went to the grave and rose up? Or were you being baptized at your actual baptism? I don't know. But I look at this and I say, look at your faith. Any of us who have been baptized into Christ, we've been baptized into him. Plain as day. Also, we'll look here in a little bit. Paul's actually encouraging sanctification here. And again, part of the lingo, part of the culture. How many times in your view of sanctification has anyone said, brother, I see you're in sin. Would you remember your baptism? You've been washed. 
You've been cleansed. Jesus united you to himself through your baptism. Don't forget the realities. You're in Christ. Again, I want to encourage us. Let the language of Scripture speak. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Don't forget your baptism. Come on. Don't be so silly. All right, Galatians 3. Same idea. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So you've been baptized into Christ. You've put on Christ, union with Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Stunning. Stunning. By the way, some of you are like, wait, isn't he talking about this idea of spiritual baptism? Again, I want to caution you with this idea of the language of Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture that I've seen or that I've heard makes a distinction between the physical elements of baptism and a spiritual baptism. Again, I can be told otherwise, but I've been hunting for a little bit. Where is that distinction clearly made? Do I, do I think that there's a spiritual baptism? Yes, something happens spiritually. We talk, we, we talk about that in, in circumcision. Our hearts are made new. We are regenerated. But again, those are all terms that are happily comfortable in the realm of baptism, even in circumcision at some, part, at some parts. But, but no one that I have heard in the New Testament makes a clear distinction between, well, that's physical baptism, which is different than a spiritual baptism. Most often, I actually see that they're actually attached. And I think that there's a way that we can think about that clearly. But anyway, John 3. And this is actually a perfect example of this. This is the story of Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus is asking, how can a man be born again? You're telling me to be born again. How, how can you enter a womb a second time? It's not possible. There's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, and no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And again, this was probably where people would point to as this distinction between, well, there's a water baptism, and that happened at like your birth, right? You were born in water, and then all of a sudden, boom, you're born in the Spirit. That's your real spiritual baptism. Again, I'm not so sure that Jesus is making that clear of a distinction. I actually thinks he's uniting those things together. Actually thinks he's saying, like, it happens in the simultaneous moment of your baptism. You've got to be born again. You've got to be born of water and the Spirit. You need both. You don't just need water. You need the Spirit. You need the Spirit there. It's a fascinating conversation. Keep going. This is Ezekiel 36. This is the Old Testament promise uh, discussion of the new covenant. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all of your idols and I will cleanse you. You have that idea of of bath and of the forgiveness of sins tucked in there. And now he's going to shift to the promise of regeneration. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Again, a multi-layered understanding of salvation given to us, of course, in the new covenant blessings, and baptism is happily included. Titus 3, 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
Again, right there, that linkage, washing of regeneration. You say, well, that doesn't necessarily include baptism. He's not actually talking about baptism there. In fact, that's not even the, the right word. He's not using baptizo. He's using a word for bath. And it's like, yeah, but if you've been reading your Bible, you know that bath is happily termed together with this uh, understanding of baptism. In fact, he would use the very same ideas in Ephesians 5 of husbands love your wives uh, as Christ has loved the church. So Christ loved us and gave himself up for us that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. It's that same idea, that washing of water, that baptizing her with water in the word, that cleansing with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. These are words that are happily lumped together in the layered pictures of baptism. And again, might, might you argue, that's not talking about baptism specifically. You could argue and say like, yeah, okay, it's not mentioning the idea of baptism, but again, it's comfortable language within this idea of baptism of which these blessings are included. It's okay to, to think rightly that that, I mean, to even assume in those moments that they're thinking baptism in these moments. What else could they be referring to? What else would be the washing of regeneration? Tell me. Some people pick up the, the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit was poured on us. Okay, but that's not clear either. It's not clear either. First Peter 3. Keep going. Christ also suffered once for sins. Uh, Peter's talking uh, to a context of people who were, who were suffering, facing persecution. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey God, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were safely brought through water. <laughs> Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Again, the multi-layeredness of the conversation of baptism. I wonder often, again, going back to the language, culture, practice of our churches, I don't know, I've, I've never heard the Noah story with its final fulfillment actually culminating in the baptism of Christ or our baptism. That's never been a takeaway from the Noah story, yet Peter's like, that's what it's talking about. Baptism was actually, or Noah was a baptism story where eight people were safely led through water. And again, going back to the physical elements, the physical versus the spiritual, would it have been enough for Noah to just wait on a spiritual salvation? What if, what if he just like, listen, 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 I'm going to go for that spiritual baptism stuff. I know Jesus is calling for some, for some earthly baptism. He's going to call down rain. But you know what? I'm holding out for my spiritual baptism. What if Noah never actually built the boat? Would he ever, ever been saved? You go to Hebrews 11. You hear about the people of faith who actually obeyed and followed God, of which Noah is included in that. Had he not built that boat, which was a step of faith, using the physical elements, putting together all that wood, actually going through the water by faith, trusting in a salvation even through physical means, you tell me, would he have been saved? And Peter says, this is what baptism is all about. And again, let the language of Scripture, let it breathe. Let it breathe in your air. It's okay. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now, we know and we would reject holistically, the act in and of itself is not what we're talking about. What we're talking about, and even what baptism points to, and again, even what Noah points to, are the signifying things. They, they are giant pointing fingers to a deeper reality. That is Christ. The things signified are what are actually meant to be grasped onto, not an action, not just going underwater at a church service. There's something being spoken. There's something being verbalized. There's something that God is actually communicating, some gospel reality. And this is where I actually want to encourage us to think through, yes, baptism is God's thing, but baptism is clearly to be received by faith. These things don't operate in and of themselves, these acts. 
Faith is absolutely necessary. Just as baptism is meaningless without the word of promise clinging to the water, so the promise is meaningless without the faith that clings to it. Let me read that again. Just as baptism is meaningless without the word of promise clinging to it. In other words, if God doesn't give us any sort of promise in that act, it's just an empty act, an empty ritual that doesn't earn any righteousness. But, same thing it is with faith. So the promise is meaningless without faith that clings to it. That's not to say that the promise is emptied of its power and of its efficacy so so long as no one believes it. In other words, when God makes a promise, it still stands. It still is powerful. And it's not conditioned upon whether or not you believe it or not. It still works. Rather, it is to say that the power and efficacy of that promise cannot be realized for the one who will not believe it. God's promise is out there. His salvation is out there. But unless by faith you trust it, rely on it, bank on it, just like Noah who built the ark and said, I will trust it. I will lean on it. I will go for it. I'll put all the blue chips on him. I'll bank everything I have on him. Then it can't be realized for you. Therefore, it is right to say that baptism in and of itself cannot work that which it signifies, but rather faith in God's word of baptism receives the blessings found therein. This faith in the word fully rejects any work or meritorious effort that would seek the benefits of salvation apart from the work and grace of God. Faith directly leans on the sufficiency of Christ's promise and nothing else. But how is that promise received? God has been gracious to hide it in plain sight in water. And he says, receive my promises and don't doubt them. See, the important thing here is the word. As I've said, nothing is special about the water. It's not holy water. But the reality is, if there is the word of God attached to these physical elements, then we can be sure that the presence of Christ is there by virtue of his spirit. We can be assured that God is actually communicating truly his word through tangible means. And if you don't think you believe this already, hold tight. Romans 10, 17. How are they going to hear or how are they going to believe, excuse me, how are they going to believe the gospel unless they hear And how are they going to hear unless beautiful feet don't go and preach it to them? How are they going to hear without a preacher? And none of us would ever say that if you've never heard a preached sermon, that doesn't mean you're not saved. None of us would ever believe that. But we see that there is something real to the fact that when God gives us a preacher and there is a word and a gospel going forward and people truly hear it, there is salvation in that through physical and tangible means. Same with our Bible. Just having a Bible is not going to save you. Reading your Bible is not going to save you. But if you open these physical elements and you read black and white text and through faith, you trust in the promises of God that are here in this physical text. Oh, my friend, none of us would sit here in this room and say that there's not salvation. There 100% is salvation given through these physical elements. So what would make us think that baptism is no different? Especially when God clearly says it is through ordinary water administered through ordinary people that I have tucked Christ himself to be received by faith and held on to. If there's the word of God present, if there's faith, then we have salvation. And none of us should be ashamed to say that. This is where we get this idea of this language of sacraments being a sign and a seal, which are part of our confession. It's a sign. There is something being signified, but there's also a seal. And Arlo, help us out here at the, or, or, or. No, we're not talking about that seal. In baptism class, he just started barking like a seal when I said that, which is a very proud uncle moment right there. It's a sign. Something's being signified, but it's also a seal. Remember those, those old letters that used to be sent with those wax stamps, and there was always a seal impressed on that wax stamp signifying authority. Heaven forbid you open that, and you're not the recipient of that letter, and there's 
uh, heavy authority attached to that wax stamp, you better be careful. Your life could be on the line. That kind of seal is also given to us in our baptism. In other words, it's not ours. It's stamped on by God's authority. It's communicated in such a way that communicates promise. And if there's faith there, then oh boy, howdy. We better be seeing these things as real coming from the hand of God. And something in that moment is happening significantly there to be received by faith. It's a work of God on the spectrum of salvation whereby our faith is either created, sustained, or grown as we participate, even in the Lord's Supper. We come here, and these aren't just memorialistic views where we just think back and we just think about the good old days of when Jesus was crucified. That does happen. We do remember Christ. Even Christ says, remember me. But as we remember him and we see the things signified and through the promise of God, we actually, by faith, internalize the realities that Christ had given himself for us, that his blood ran on the cross for us and for our sins. There is ongoing faith. There is sustaining faith being given to us through physical elements. Through the elements themselves? Through the work itself? No. But through the word attached to these elements. And I say, my friends, there's something that the Spirit is at work to do in these moments that's significant. You shouldn't just flatly think about these things as empty rituals or just merely think about the good old days. No, my friends, something's going on right here and right now. Part of why the apostles would go and say, repent and be baptized. In this moment, repent, believe, and be baptized. Part of Jesus' invitation as well. There is a significance to the moment. Baptism enables those talking this is I'm shifting here uh, ongoing faith in the in the seal of baptism moving from faith to actually a daily motion of baptism baptism and daily repentance baptism enables those who believe to walk in daily repentance before God on this topic Paul the apostle impresses on believers to remember their baptism so that they might not continue in sin he says how can we who died to sin still live in it Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Being united to the death of Christ through baptism is the faith-filled fuel behind Paul's command to put to death what is earthly in you, from Colossians 3.5. Remembering one's baptism not only turns him away from sin, but also stirs up faith in the realities of Christ. Or as Luther said, for as long as we live, we are continually doing that which baptism signifies. I'll read that again. For as long as we live, we are continually doing that which baptism signifies. That is being crucified and living in light of the resurrection of Christ. Indeed, our whole life, should be baptism and the fulfilling of the sign and sacrament of it, since we have been set free from all else and given over to baptism alone, that is, to death and resurrection. The ongoing nature and work of baptism should be part of the culture, language, and practice of our faith. That's why we talk about here being baptized children of God. It's significant to have a new identity, to be crucified with Christ and made anew. That identity is foundational to who you are. In conclusion, yes, we've stated baptism is God's pledge to us through mere water and the word of our union with Christ. It is a sign and a seal of our participation in his death and resurrection, of our sins being washed away, of our incorporation into his body, the church, and our being filled with the Holy Spirit. We come to believe that baptism is actually given for the sake of faith. And faith is given to us whereby we might actually triumph over sin, both holistically but also now, here and and now. The reality is I can start to line up these evidences of baptism or or these, these truths of baptism with your own life and tell you how necessary and needful and wonderful baptism is for you. Hear this reality. Are you, are you struggling with habitual sin? Remember your baptism. Are you wrestling with matters of identity, purpose, or direction in your life? Remember your baptism. 
Are you having a hard time in relationships with people in the church? Remember your baptism. Are you having a hard time with people outside the church? Oh, my friend, remember your baptism. Are you struggling to follow Jesus in specific categories of your life? Oh, dear friend, dear friend, remember your baptism. Are you looking for acceptance, belonging, or unconditional love? Remember your baptism. Do you wish that Jesus was a little bit closer, that you had a tangible experience with our Savior? Oh, dear friends, remember your baptism. Do you long for the realities of Jesus to be seen in your life? Oh, my friends, they already have. Remember your baptism. Do you wish you could hear the voice of Jesus? Remember your baptism. It's amazing to think somebody over your life under the authority of God himself said, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, I baptize you into the name of Christ, buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life. If you have been baptized, that is true of you, my friend. It is amazing. You should hold on to that with every fiber of your being. It should be the echo of your entire life. It should be your only boast and grounds for boasting that you are in him. What is your only hope in life and death? Catechism question number one. What is your only hope? That through baptism, you are included into Christ, that you have him, that you are his, both body and soul, you belong to him. What other comfort could there be out there? So I want to rephrase our statement of faith in a way that's actually pastoral and helpful and not just a theological category. Baptism is God's pledge to you through water and the word that you have been united with Christ. It is a sign and seal of your participation in his death and resurrection, that your sins are washed away, that you are incorporated into his body, the church, and that you have been filled in him by the Spirit. Could you possibly need anything more than the realities of baptism? And if by faith you are trusting in these words, my friend, that is salvation. I hope you understand that. That trusting in in these realities is faith being worked in you that triumphs over sin, that works against sin here and now, and is nothing short of the Spirit working salvation in you. And I hope by God's grace, you're comforted, you're challenged, you're grown, you're encouraged, you hear the good news, and you believe, grow, and hope. It's my prayer for you in understanding baptism. I know there might be a million questions. I'm okay with that. I want you to think. I'm actually out of town this week. So if you send me an email, I'm probably not going to hear it, listen to it, pay attention to it. I'm, I'm taking this, the seniors at Northside Christian School on a senior trip. We're going camping in, in North Carolina. I won't, I won't have access to what I normally have access to. So if you're mad and you send me a scathing email about baptism, I'm not going to hear it. Ha, ha, ha. But I want to get to it. And if you're mad, that's okay. Um, but I, I do want to hear it. Just know that that's where I'm at. So it'll probably be a week or two. But also, it may be worth just wrapping up the series. Just let it, let it finish out before you fire something. And again, I've given you these scriptures. I challenge you first, argue with those. Argue with those. And then come talk. All right? Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful that you've given extraordinary things, miraculous things, in common and ordinary places. And certainly, Father, we would say that about the nature of the gospel. You have hidden a treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing worth belongs to you and not to us. You've allowed people like me and like us to hold the treasure of the gospel and to speak it, to to give it out clearly. And we've even seen some of the fruit of that reality, that you've actually brought redemption in real time and in real space here because of the work that you've done through us. And that's amazing. Father, I pray that you would continue to sharpen us and challenge us to include the gift and the work of your baptism into the life of your people so that we might certainly reflect the realities of Scripture, but most importantly, understand, benefit, be encouraged, and be uh, strengthened with the grace that is in Christ Jesus for the task that we've been given, for the mission you've given us to. 
Father, thank you for Christ, for the baptism that we have in him, for the ability to be placed in him by faith so freely. Pray these things through Christ. Amen. to the